Good morning. I am truly thrilled to share with you this morning from the book of Ruth. Truly, along with Nick, one of my favorite books of the Bible, right? But it is, it is uh, actually one of my favorite books and just really delighted to be able to share this with you. If you grab those seatback Bibles uh, in front of you, for those of you who want to use those, you'll find the book of Ruth on page 222. And we will progress our way through this wonderful historical narrative that describes God's redemptive love. Let me pray very briefly, and then we'll get started. Father, may we rejoice in the redemptive promises that you have fulfilled for us in Christ today. May we see an illustration, a a vivid illustration of your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, what stirs your heart, your imagination, with hope for the next steps of the journey of your life, wherever you are in your life today? How does God's loyal covenantal love fit into that process, that loyal covenantal love that God has demonstrated for you in the Lord Jesus Christ? How does that love encourage you forward in the journey of your faith today? Now, I'm going to give you a theme statement that we're going to track from the book of Ruth, and then we're going to progress through the book as a story in four major acts, okay, or, th- or chapters and acts, as if they're kind of like acts of a play. Let me give you the theme statement first. I know I usually don't develop theme statements that are quite this long, but here we go. Okay, you ready? God's, or faith, sorry, faith in God's loyal love prompts Godward submission, or God, I'm sorry, am am I making a mess of this here? Let me start again. Faith in God's loyal love prompts Godward initiative, humble submission, redemptive self-sacrifice, and hopeful hearts. I'm going to say it again. Faith in God's loyal love prompts Godward initiative, humble submission, redemptive self-sacrifice, and hopeful hearts. Now, we will track those four key ideas as themes that emerge throughout this story in the book of Ruth, and certainly I would love for you to follow along with me in your Bibles as we progress through this relevant narrative for our lives, as we ourselves live, as we would say, quorum Deo, before the face and the presence of God. The four acts or the four chapters I'll give you as we go, okay? I'm going to give you a title for each of those four chapters, and once we go, we're off and running, all right? So the first act is chapter one. As we begin to track that theme, act one, chapter one, we hear about a devastating predicament, a devastating predicament, and please follow along with me in your Bibles as, as we move through. A devastating predicament. You see, verses 1 to 5 tell us that about 3,000 years ago, there was a desperate Jewish woman clinging to a tentative hope. Naomi and her husband Elimelech lived in the land of Israel in a time of great geographic and cultural and political and social and religious turmoil. Before King David arrived on the scene to bring peace and order 
to the situation there. Israel had failed to do what God commanded them to do and cleanse the land from Canaanite idolatry. And in fact, Judges chapter 21, verse 25, which is a book just adjacent to Ruth, says this way, that this book taking place in that same setting, Judges 21, 25, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So because of that pervasive idolatry in the land, Yahweh's, God's, the covenant-keeping God, his long-promised security for the people of Israel was fragile. It was fragmented. There was a frightening famine of divine providence that gripped the land. And so this Jewish family left their ancestral home, Israel, and they left the town of Bethlehem in Ephrathah. And the town name of Bethlehem means house of bread, ironically enough, during a time of great famine. They went across the Jordan River to the land of Moab, not to a place or a land of sojourn in rest, but a land of sojourn in paganism. You see, the the Moabites were the incest-derived ancestors of Israel through Lot, Abraham's nephew. They were historical enemies of Israel. They worshipped a pagan deity, not Yahweh. In fact, that pagan deity was known in their era as Chemosh, the destroyer. And 1 Kings 11 calls that god Chemosh the abomination of Moab. And so the father of this family, Elimelech, whose name, by the way, means my God is king. He left the safety of the king's community to lead his family into the dangerous and the unknown. His wife, Naomi, whose name means pleasant or lovely, along with their two grown sons, they, in verse, if you look in verse 1 there in chapter 1, you see that they first went to sojourn in Moab, and then in, in verse 2 they remained in Moab, and then in verse 4 they lived there. And what we find is that Yahweh, their, their covenant-keeping God, did not bless those ten years that they lived in Moab. In fact, first, Elimelech, my God is king, he dies. And he's, as the patriarch and the father of the family, he's gone. And then what we see next is that the two sons, Malon and Kilion, they marry two pagan Moabite women, and then they both die. And so we have these three grieving and bereaved widows who had waited for an heir that will connect us back again to the land of Israel here shortly. They had waited for an heir, and they waited for an heir in barren silence. There were these three childless widows in a land of foreign gods outside their own land of promised rest. If you look at Deuteronomy chapter 30, 1 to 3, you'll see that land of promise that God had provided for them. And the question we ask is, these three childless widows, who will show God's loyal love, loyal love to them now? And so in verse 6, this daughter of the covenant, Naomi, in this devastating predicament, she makes a desperate decision. She heard from the fields of Moab across the Jordan that Yahweh had visited his people, verse 6, and given them food. And so she arose. 
And she wanted to return to the land of Yahweh's covenant blessing. And she has these two daughter-in-laws with her. And she instructs them to return to their maternal homes. Because she's recognizing that as a bereaved widow with no heir, no other sons she even talks about, she can't give them seven sons to provide for them again. She can't provide security for them. She's incapable of herself accomplishing the purposes of God's hesed love, which we'll talk about here that she does pray, indeed, God's hesed blessing over them in verse 9, and yet she is unable to fulfill that kind of, of gift for them. Now, let me just define, I know you've probably heard, even in Psalm 117, when we read the idea of unfailing love or steadfast love from God, that term is one word in Hebrew, and it's the word hesed. It's a description of God's covenant love. And I, I want to read a definition for you of that, that concept from Daniel Block, because it's, an, it's a significant concept for us all as Christians. He, he describes God's covenantal love this way, as a strong relational term that wraps up all the positive attributes of God. Love, mercy, grace, kindness, goodness, benevolence, loyalty, covenant faithfulness. In short, that quality that moves a person to act for the benefit of another without respect to the advantage it might bring to the one who expresses it. So that's the sum description of the kind of love that God gives. That's the character of God in his covenant love, his hesed love, his loyal love. But in the frailty of Naomi's faith in this moment, she sends these two girls away from the land of God's loyal love. We see in Naomi's fragile faith not a a Godward initiative, but a feeble initiative. We see not a humble submission, but a hesitant submission. We, we don't see a, a sacrificing a self, but we see this, this questioning of the circumstances of her life. And we don't see hope in her heart, we see frustration in her heart. And I, I know we can relate to that, my friends, many times in circumstances of our lives. And so through tears and kisses and the three of them clinging to one another in verses 9 and 10, Orpah and Ruth pledge to stay with her. Three times Naomi urges them, go back, go back to your mothers. These forlorn girls who are in a difficult predicament as widows, no doubt, in that environment. And this is where we see Naomi's first mention of bitterness there. If you look at verse 13, it's a word that's going to reoccur for us with a lot of meaning later. It's the Hebrew word mara, and it underscores her sense of frustration and hopelessness. She's unable to discern and embrace Yahweh's loyal love for her. She can't find the, the faith, therefore, to provide hope for those girls. The hand of God, or Yahweh, has condemned them, she says, and therefore She's condemned, and then therefore they're condemned. In, in effect, she's saying, Yahweh's hand has brought this bitterness upon us. That's a hard predicament of heart, is it not? And so through her tears there in verse 14 in chapter 1, Orpah decides to go home. And sadly enough, yes, verse 15, even to Kamosh, the god of her family, her heritage, the false god, the destroyer. There's a lot of application there that we could talk about, but we don't have time. But I suspect there are many opportunities for us to consider choosing returning to destruction 
and continuing in pathways of life. Naomi urges Ruth as well, go back. She, she urges her four times here in chapter 1. And the question is, what is Ruth going to do? Will she, this is a crossroads moment for her, right? So will she choose the broad path of the practical, the known, the comfortable, the convenient, or the narrow path of faith, the path of initiative and submission and self-sacrifice and hope? And here we have this definitive declaration We have a determination in the heart of Ruth of loyal love. We have a presentation of God's gift of faith that's evident in her. This one who is Ruth, often mentioned as the Moabite. Ruth makes a decision for faith. Praise God for that decision. She makes a decision for initiative, for submission, for self-sacrifice, and for hope. Look there at verses 16 and 17 with me, and let's read these together, these critical verses in chapter 1. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you, for where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. So Ruth says, I choose your God, your land, your house, your people, my life and death for and with you. I take an oath according to the loyal love of your covenant God, Yahweh. I resign all other loyalties in order to journey for a lifetime by faith with Yahweh and his people. That's a faith that appears to be even greater than Naomi's. In this moment, and it's, it appears to be a faith even greater than that of Abraham, because Ruth had only heard rumors of Yahweh's love and his divine words, mediated through compromised role models. And praise God that his love breaks through the compromise that we represent as role models. Isn't that the case? Ruth, the faith filled, hopeful Moabite, And Naomi, the doubting, cynical Israelite. And so in verse 19 in chapter 1, Naomi and Ruth make that 7 to 10 day walking journey from Moab back to Bethlehem, crossing the Jordan on to the other side there. They return to the house of bread more than 10 years after Naomi's original departure. Naomi the Israelite, and Ruth the Moabite, now returning empty-handed to the irony of a divinely blessed grain harvest, an irony of abundance and hope and celebration for the community of faith there in Bethlehem. Now the town feels this stir of bewilderment. Can this be pleasant Naomi in verse 20? Naomi feels a sting of bitter irony. Really? Pleasant? No, she says, call me Mara. Call me bitter. She uses the name Shaddai for God here, twice. Shaddai the all-powerful. 
She says that Shaddai, the all-powerful, has dealt bitterly with me. Verse 21, she says, I left in faith, hope, with all that she had of value. She returns in futility and emptiness with nothing. God himself obviously opposes me. He has condemned me. He has sealed my fate. The all-powerful Shaddai has intentionally and irreparably injured me through continuous calamitous circumstances. And that grim situation ends chapter 1, okay? A desperate predicament still for these two ladies. But here in chapter 2, as we begin chapter 2, what we encounter is act 2, a divine provision. So a desperate predicament and a divine provision. First, if you look there in verse 2 of chapter 2, you'll notice that Ruth the Moabite takes initiative Faith's initiative, right? A Godward initiative to collect the grain that's intentionally left behind by workers in the fields of Israel for the impoverished and the destitute. That was one of the gracious provisions of the law of God for them. And faith-filled Ruth, then, is wisely sacrificing for Naomi's well-being. She's serving her mother-in-law in this way as a foreigner and a despised Moabite. She's at great risk to be harmed by others in the fields in the process of her work, in fact, that's mentioned various times throughout the book because as a foreigner, she's one who isn't a part of that faith community, is not seen positively by the faith communities there, but she courageously and humbly submits herself to Yahweh's protection, hoping in God's people, God's love, God's law, that which she knows of who he is so far. So that's one surprising provision is her faith act there. And then secondly, we see a second surprising provision in verse 3. If you look there in verse 3 of chapter 2, it says, And she happened to come to the fields of, of Boaz. Now, this is significant because what we find out in verse 1 there is that Boaz is from the same Ephrathite clan as Naomi, that common ancestry. And as such... He represents Naomi's clan. Now, we've lived in contexts around the world and have seen many examples where clan identities really matter. For people groups like the Atta or the Yanomamu people, this is a common reality of life for peoples in other societies that we don't necessarily relate to. And let me, so one author says it this way, he says that a clan is the most important single group in Israelite society. Clans enjoyed permanent ownership of specific kinds of lands. God had given Israel ownership of land in the, the way that the land was allocated in Joshua 13 to 17. And so, per Israelite law and custom, a kinsman redeemer, which is a term that's going to come up again for us, he was the goel, that's the term in Hebrew. He was the one who was obliged to protect those land rights if people became destitute and they had to sell the land from their clan. That's Leviticus chapter 25 we read lots of those land right statements there. So among the duties of a goel or a kinsman redeemer, he would redeem the property that was once owned by clan members but had to be sold from economic hardship. And so the kinsman redeemer was this one who would purchase land back like that in order to maintain what God's law stipulated, which was that inheritance to be possessed within the clan where God originally gave the land out to them. And then in verse 4, we have a third surprising provision. 
This word that comes up again later in the Hebrew, and behold, and behold, as if another coincidence, and behold, Boaz, their kinsman redeemer, just so happens to show up to find Ruth working in the field. Unexpectedly, this wealthy, noble, Yahweh-fearing relative arrives on the scene. He asks and he hears about Ruth's faith initiative, her courage, her request to glean in loyal love for her mother-in-law, her sacrificial work ethic. And in this critical moment, praise God, a godly man provides. Verses 8 and 9, he generously decides in faith's initiative to, re- to reward loyal Ruth with special status in the community of faith. Now both Ruth and Boaz are interacting in a Godward initiative. We, we see Boaz determining that Ruth should share in the privileges of his hired workers, his protection. We see that four times in this chapter he goes out of his way to do that which I had previously mentioned, which is to protect her to safeguard her from the the harm that could come to her as she works there in chapter 2. And just um, interesting to see that in faith's character, Ruth doesn't respond with some kind of entitlement. No, verse 10, look there in verse 10 in chapter 2. She responds with that humble heart, with a submitted heart. She responds with one who knows that she's receiving undeserved favor. She says there in verse 10, Why have I found favor favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? She falls to the ground, in fact, in grateful submission. She refers to herself using a Hebrew word for a servant that's the kind of servant that does not deserve the covenant privileges of belonging to Yahweh's people. Now, I know that may all make us feel a little uncomfortable, like that's a, that's a lot of subservience. Friends, that's all of us. We're those who've received a kind of undeserved privilege from God that we just simply fall to our face, I trust, in humility for. But Boaz, in verses 11 to 13 there in chapter 2, he already knows and trusts Ruth's faith reputation. He has seen Already her Godward initiative and her humble submission. He has heard of her redemptive self-sacrifice and service to her mother-in-law, abandoning her own culture and geography and, and social situation and her religious identity. He knows that she has willingly come to live with a hopeful heart in a society and religious identity that was previously not hers. Ruth trusts, she demonstrates trust in the loyal love of this foreign God and the foreign people who belong to that God. And Boaz knows as a godly man that Yahweh is indeed trustworthy. We see that in verse 12 there in chapter 2 because Boaz prays this prayer that's a Godward prayer. He says in some that God's loyal love is trustworthy, that Yahweh is the one who could complete the reward for Ruth, that Yahweh is the one who could pay her a full wage for her faith, that he's the one who could make her loyal love whole. And then he uses this phrase that describes her taking refuge under the protective wings of Yahweh as that 
that eagle or the one who would, would provide that kind of safeguarding for her. Only he, this God of Israel, this Yahweh of Israel, could provide that for Ruth. All who trust him. And we see there in verse 13 that Ruth responds again graciously, that she's heard these kind words of Boaz, and uh, she's thankful for those, uh, that dignity that she's representing there. And then in verses 14 to 16, we see that Boaz, having invited her into his circle, he, he demonstrates that he thinks a lot more of her than just a lowly servant. She now joins his dining table. She's seated at the table with him and with his reapers. He personally hands food to her. He gives her opportunity now for free gleaming in the fields, not having to just pick up those scraps left behind well beyond what the law would require of him from Deuteronomy chapter 24. Now Ruth begins to experience the the outworking of her faith in a kind of favor demonstrated through another godly and Godward person, an abundance that propels her heart forward toward faith, growth in faith. In verses 17 to 23 in chapter 2, we notice that Ruth obviously toiled long and hard because she gathered in, in the equivalent of what would be 29 pounds of dry beaten grain. Now that's more than half a month's wages in the time period there in one day. So the, the, the privilege that Boaz had shown to her made that possible. And in fact, the meal that Boaz shared with her personally was so bountiful that when she went home to Naomi, Naomi was eating the food that Boaz had given to Ruth, and Naomi sees the grain in this basket, and she's trying to figure out what's happening here. This is not normal. We, are in a, we were in a destitute situation, and now what, right? The pilot light of Naomi's faith reignites. Yahweh God stirs hope in her heart again. She recognizes the favor of Yahweh in Boaz. And now with exuberant excitement in verse 20, Naomi confirms that Boaz is relative and goel. He's kinsman redeemer. He's one that if he would, he could demonstrate redemptive self-sacrifice for them. Now both Naomi and Ruth, we see this beginning of interaction of faith's hope. We see this expression at least maybe in the seven to eight uh, weeks of the harvest season. That's typically how long that harvest season would last. That at least that could be providing for them through the season and into the winter at the least. Perhaps Ruth could continue to interact with Boaz in his fields enjoy his protection. Naomi encourages her to stay in his protection. And so at the end of chapter 2, in verse 23, we read that she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. So there's no resolution to the story yet. There's still two unmarried widows having had some provision and yet still unresolved in situation. That brings us to chapter 3. Chapter 3 is Act 3, a daring petition. A daring petition. Ruth, this woman of faith's initiative, submission, sacrifice, and hope, now works with her mother-in-law to craft a plan 
because Naomi is energized by God's faithfulness to them. And so in verses 1 to 5, they craft this plan. Now listen, it's a risky plan, okay? But Naomi knows that Ruth's opportunity to continue working for Boaz is closing because the harvest season has ended and she may or may not have continued access to him. So these two women of faith encouraging one another in faith, and again, there are, there are applications every which place in this book that I can't make, okay? But these two women of faith encouraging each other's faith, they, they, they take initiative, and Naomi now demonstrates, again, self-sacrifice. She wants Ruth to be stable outside of her home. She doesn't want Ruth to have to depend solely on her anymore, so she wants Ruth to have a married situation outside of her home, and here we go. So they craft this plan. Naomi explains, Ruth prepares, and listen to this now. This may not be the plan you recommend to your teenagers, um, but listen to this, okay? Boaz and Ruth are alone at night on the threshing floor, washed and anointed. Boaz is lying down. Ruth is lying down. They're well-dressed, and Ruth is going to uncover his feet. Does that feel a little challenging to you in some ways, right? A little suggestive, and I agree, I agree, but this is going to depend on godly character, right? These are two people who are going to have to demonstrate a kind of godly stability, a Godward initiative that will make for Ruth the intentions of her heart clear to Boaz in no uncertain terms. Ruth is going to have to trust God again because in a situation like this, she could be mistreated, And so she has to trust God working through Boaz in his loyal love to protect her. She must submit again and apply faith's initiative with a sacrificial, hopeful heart. And so just imagine that scene with me in verses 6 to 13 there. Ruth arrives at the threshing floor in the dark. She's waiting for the other workers to leave She hides. She's waiting for Boaz to eat and go to bed. He has a meal. He lies down, obviously, in a place where he's somewhat secluded away from other people there in the threshing area. In the the cool of the night, Ruth uncovers his feet and lies down beside him. And guess what? Just like happens to you, you woke up and you found out your feet were cold, right? So your feet are cold. And Boaz... uh, The difference is that he's startled because there's someone there with him. What is happening, right? Maybe he smells the anointing and he uh, sees her profile. We don't know. But there's this awkward moment in verse 9 there. Boaz sees her and he, he says, who are you? That would be a good question to ask, wouldn't it? And Ruth says, I am Ruth, your servant. A simple exchange. But in that exchange, Ruth, unlike earlier instances, she doesn't call herself Ruth the Moabite. And the word for servant isn't the same word as the undeserving one from before. It's the word maidservant. It's the word that is used to talk about eligible for marriage maidservants. And so Ruth is speaking now with a Godward initiative in verse 9. Isn't that risky in many ways? She's trusting in the loyal God, the God Yahweh, the law in his love of him through Boaz. In fact, now she says, I got you, Boaz, because she says to him, 
spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Don't forget now, just previously, Boaz had said, God is the kind of person or the kind of being who demonstrates the character to spread wings of protection over his children. And now Ruth is saying, Boaz, if you want to act like God, then you can do that same work for us. You can demonstrate redemptive self-sacrifice, loyal love. You can demonstrate the character of God himself for us. And thankfully, right, because it's an awkward moment, we try to put those down as quickly as we can. So in verse 10, Boaz immediately seeks to relieve the awkwardness of the situation, and he reassures her there. If you read in verse 10, chapter 3, he says, May you be blessed by Yahweh, my daughter. So Boaz knows this act of Ruth is not selfish. It's not uh, self-seeking, but it's an act of loyal love, redemptive self-sacrifice for Naomi's family. He goes on to say, hey, you could have chosen some of the other young men you met while you were gleaning in the fields, the rich and the poor. So those who maybe were poor, but still good looking, I guess, or whatever, right? And then those who were well-to-do who could have easily provided for her, but she didn't do that. So in verse 11 there, in chapter 3, Boaz makes it clear, in fact, that her reputation locally is well established in the community. He uses a term to refer to her there in verse 11. He calls her a woman of strength, a woman of strength. That's, That's a term used two other times in the Old Testament in Proverbs, in Proverbs 12. And guess where the other place is? Proverbs 31. So he makes... A comparison to Ruth the Moabite, even as a foreigner, her character communicates faith's identity, not ethnicity's identity. He says that she's an ideal woman of covenant testimony who will strengthen her husband's reputation in the faith community of Israel. But, but, we have one additional Significant complication. In verses 12 and 13, another closer kinsman redeemer exists with prior claim to Elimelech's property. And I, we say, oh no, we don't, that's not what we want. We want resolution for this story, right? But Boaz promises Ruth, according to Yahweh who lives, that he will do all that he can. And now we see, as is many, often the case in our circumstances of life, now we're, they're both submitted before the work of God. They're both submitted before Yahweh. They both must await the work that God will do on their behalf as Boaz plans to talk to this other kinsman redeemer. And so the couple arise early in the morning on, in verse 14 there. They, they are seeking to protect Ruth's reputation. He gives... Naomi, uh, he gives Ruth um, enough barley now that it's, it's at least double of that 29 pounds. So now we're, they're, they're into multiple months of, of dried grain that would provide for them. Through that Godward initiative, Ruth uh, is returning to Naomi there. And in verse 18, now both women are waiting for God. Both women are waiting for God to work through Boaz to work through a kinsman redeemer to decide what kind of loyal love he will demonstrate for them. Naomi voices hope. We see her hope, as I've described, ignited here, that God and Bo- through Boaz will continue moving the situation forward 
But we ask the question, how will God's divine lot fall? Which brings us finally to chapter 4. A determinative purpose. A determinative purpose. How will Yahweh show loyal love to Naomi and to Elimelech and to Ruth and to me and to Boaz and to you? Verse 1 in chapter 4, that same morning or shortly thereafter, Boaz goes up to the city gate, and that's the place where people typically entered and exited the cities there. He goes to find the elders of the city and to find this other Goel, this other kinsman redeemer. He's wanting to encounter both groups there because that's the place where Judges uh, chapter 8 and, six, eight and 1 Samuel 11, they talk about the fact that the, the judging of the, of the affairs of the city took place in that city gate kind of setting, okay? And so Boaz is there, I assume maybe the next morning, that's the impression we get it was very quickly taken care of. In verse 1, it says, again, chapter 4, verse 1 there, it says, guess what? And behold, that providence of God again, Right? The other kinsman redeemer happens to walk by. Verses 2 to 6 there. Now, I'm going to make this, try to make this simple because there are, there are complications we can get ourselves into, like terms like leveret marriage and land rights issues and all kinds of these complications. But let me keep it simple if I can. And by the way, if you want to look up leveret marriage issues like the one with Judah and Tamar, that's Genesis 38. Deuteronomy 25 talks about that leveret marriage uh, concept. And the land redemption principles often are in the Old Testament law, but Leviticus 25 shares those with you if you want to look up those later. But I'll try to stay simple. So Boaz is facing three related dilemmas that combine leveret marriage and land rights, okay? Number one, the redemption of the property to preserve inheritance for Naomi and Elimelech. Now, that's number one, the redemption of the property. Number two, the marriage of Ruth to provide a family heir. Because if they redeem the property, but there's no heir, they can lose the property again. And then number three, we have this older widow, Naomi, who needs provision. And the way that provision often occurred was through ownership and possession of land, that they were subsistence-based peoples, just like ones we've encountered around the world, and so they needed access to that land. And so those are the three dilemmas. Those dilemmas would require a unique situation of a kinsman redeemer, a goel, who would take on all of that work. And friends, that's work that they had no hope of accomplishing for themselves. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? And so as Boaz talks with this kinsman redeemer in verse 3, he first reminds him, he starts by reminding him about the property. He says in verse 3 there, if you want to read in verse 3, chapter 4, he says, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. And then in verse 4, Boaz charges him. This is a public setting of official business. He has to make the right statement. And so he says, if you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. And the other redeemer said, I will redeem it. 
again, oh no, like that's not what we want. We don't want that. We don't want, Boaz doesn't want to hear that, and we don't want to hear it, right? But given Boaz's loyal love for God and for Naomi and for Ruth, now we, he realizes that just redeeming the land will not be sufficient to provide for them because Ruth and Naomi will still be at risk. They need an heir to preserve their property and their livelihood long term. And so do we, right? Boaz knows that in the ideal scenario, this kinsman redeemer would pay for the land, marry Ruth, and provide for Naomi as a bereaved widow. Without the marriage to Ruth, the purchase of property would not save Elimelech's family. So Boaz doesn't stop. In verse 5, he tactfully pressures this Goel, this kinsman redeemer, through an ethical commitment to marry Ruth. He says there in verse 5, chapter 4, he says, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Now, Boaz doesn't just describe the ethical commitment. He also added there an ethnic complication. And I have the feeling, I just get the feeling as I read this, and maybe you do too, he wanted this to get complicated, right? I mean, he wanted this to work out a certain kind of way. But just remember other kinsman redeemer, other no-named kinsman redeemer, which has significance that I won't talk about, other kinsman redeemer. This is complicated for you probably, right? That kind of question. Just in case you wondered, this is a Moabite. Don't forget. And his Godward calculation succeeds. The man thinks about the factors of land, marriage to Ruth, support of Naomi, and he, he decides that he won't make that sacrifice. It's too costly for him. He will not risk his own inheritance, his own financial portfolio, if you will. In fact, the man uses a really strong verb in, in verse 6. That means that that kind of a decision could ruin, spoil, or destroy his own inheritance. Now, again, another application that we won't spend a lot of time on. There was one who decided that he would risk the spoiling of whatever that inheritance might be, right? To die as a kinsman redeemer. And yet, in verses 6 and 8, we rejoice now, right? We rejoice with this unnamed man, because we don't care what his name is now. He gave up his, his right. He formally passed his responsibility to Boaz, who then assumes that role. And in verses 9 and 10, Boaz is not going to stop without being thorough. He says to the elders and the people, you are witnesses. He clarifies publicly with legal precision and intention the responsibilities that he's taking up. He in a tender gesture publicly, he redeems the land and Ruth the Moabite, the widow, to be his wife, to receive an inheritance, to become native to a land where she did not belong, to, to be a part of Yahweh's covenant community. In fact, it's a strange set of statements from the townspeople in verses 11 and 12. They they actually go on public record in the Scriptures, which is a rarity. And in fact, it's one of the reasons why commentators 
would question the historical accuracy at times because it's such a peculiar event for there to be a recorded speech from town people, townspeople like this. Hey, we don't question the historical accuracy. We just marvel at the fact that God orchestrated the townspeople to speak into the situation for us and publicly confirm Ruth, the Moabite, as one who is comparable to the most foundational women in the character and the fabric of the nation of Israel. That they would go out of their way to compare her to Rachel and to Leah, the wives of Jacob, whose other name is Israel. The 12 tribes who received the land that they're talking about and have it just inherited. That they would go out of their way to compare her to Tamar, the one who was responsible directly with Judah to produce the heir that became their ancestor. And so we hear these beautiful prophetic voices that, that reach forward here across centuries, even across a millennium, and they allude to a future genealogical miracle. Marvelous prophetic voices that connect Ruth to a future David, one who would also be born in Bethlehem. Prophetic voices that strain forward, and we as Christians know, they strain forward towards another final future fame for Bethlehem Ephrathah. Micah 5.2 But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days, a messianic genealogy. And indeed, verse 13, wonder of wonders, God orchestrated for Ruth to have a child, Naomi's male heir, little Obed. Verses 14 and 15, the women speak to Naomi. They see the blessing of God here. They say to her there, if you read in verses 14 and 15, Blessed be Yahweh, who has not left you this day. And hey, these are words for us, okay? He has not left you this day without a Redeemer. May His name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life. Yes, uh, friends, He has not left us this day. Through David's descendant, the Lord Jesus Christ, Yahweh has acted as redeemer and restorer of life for all of us. May his name be renowned in all the world. And all of this because of Ruth the Moabite. One, according to Deuteronomy chapter 23, whose line could not previously enter the assembly of Yahweh even to the tenth generation. None of the Moabites may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. Deuteronomy 23. So what we conclude is this is not Ruth the Moabite. This is Ruth the one-time Moabite. This is the one who has been adopted as a member of the covenant community of faith because she has demonstrated Godward initiative Humble submission, redemptive self-sacrifice, 
and a hopeful heart. She's one who, in verse 11, is talked about as contributing to the building of the whole house of Israel. Yes, Ruth, who receives this honor, more expected and greater than she could ever imagine. Ruth, whose insecurity and emptiness through God's loyal love is replaced by security and fullness. Ruth, in the line of David, in the line of the Messiah. Friends, that's quite a story, isn't it? A story of journeying by faith in God's loyal love. I I assume that you've seen many parallels to your own life. I certainly feel those. In Christ, Yahweh loves all who would call on Him like this. He seeks to bless all families of the earth through the seed of Abraham, through the seed of David, through the line of Christ. I ask you first, those of you in the room who may not have made a decision to trust Christ, have you been blessed by God through Christ? Christ descended from this Moabite woman, Ruth. When we translated this book for the Atta people of Papua New Guinea, and we taught it for the first time, they were just astounded because they always thought of the Hebrews as this self-contained, separate people. And they heard the story that God had taken a destitute Moabite like them and like you, and he had grafted them into the line of Jesus. And they were thrilled by that. They were tremendously excited to think about the connections to Bethlehem. That Christ was born there in the house of bread, the place where Naomi and Ruth had, or Naomi had left from. That he was their kinsman redeemer. That he's one who lived a sinless life. He was the only one who could achieve those redemptive purposes for them in Christ. That he was the, the fully God and fully man sufficient one. That his sin, his sacrifice solved the problem of their sin predicament. And that now because of his provision that they could access Jesus through repenting of their sins and turning in faith to him. And I I just challenge you today, if you're a person who hasn't seen the connectedness of God's purposes through Christ like that, that you too can be a part of God's covenant community, that you can accept the, the sheltering protection of God, the covenant keeper, the loyal love giver through Christ. So if you're not a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ today, I challenge you to consider making that decision. There are a lot of people in the room who would love to talk with you about that. And then just a few closing thoughts for those of us who are believers, okay? What about the strengthening of our faith, my covenant brothers and sisters? What does God's loyal love prompt from our faith How should we continue in our journeys of faith in God's loyal love in Christ? And I'm going to take issue here with William Cooper, all right? I'm going to say that behind God's, or behind frowning circumstance, God hides a smiling face. I I question whether God's providence actually frowns. I think we see evidences at times that God, we don't see the outworking of God's purposes, but God is always smiling providentially on us because we are those who are his children. So while God's ways are at times mysterious, he is smiling on us, he has rescued us. We are the destitute, the helpless, the hopeless, 
As we said in the beginning, faith in God's loyal love prompts Godward initiative, humble submission, redemptive self-sacrifice, and hopeful hearts. So I'm just going to press in very briefly on each of those for us as believers. Godward initiative, okay? A couple questions for you to think about. Like Israel and Ruth, may we and would you consider, are you continually delighting in the exclusive lineage that we're a part of in Christ? The Lord Jesus Christ, our King, the one who was appointed by God for us, are you walking faithfully, godwardly, as your priority, as his disciple? Humble submission. Do you really believe that because you're here this morning that God's mysterious providence includes you? Do you really believe that you're part of an unfolding story of God that accounts for you as an individual? That you're built into God's wonderful purposes. Ruth didn't understand her role at the time. She wasn't in the know about the future. And yet she submitted by faith to God's loyal love. And I pray that we too will regularly submit ourselves to his purposes and trust him for those kinds of outcomes. Thirdly, self-sacrifice. Just challenge us today. Live redemptively. Live in self-sacrifice. Testify to the loyal love of God in how you live. Share his truth in your life with others around you. Lay down your life for Christ's purposes and for his people. I can promise you, you will not regret that decision. And then finally, a hopeful heart. Faith prompts a hopeful heart. God is the only one who can lift up our eyes from circumstance. He's the only one who can give dignity to our existences. So beware, my brothers and sisters, of jaded pettiness, of short-sightedness, of bitter cynicism, of hearts that lose hope. May we be those whose journeys of faith produce winsome excitement, and wholesome expectation. Because you and I can never predict, we can never imagine the twists and the turns of the wonderful, intentional, providential love of God for us and for others. Let's pray together.